Welcome, everyone, to the Iron Fist podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. You are really pushing the limits of my karma. The Iron Fist podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 104, Eight Diagram Dragon Palm, is sponsored by Golden Sands Chinese Restaurant. Try our new hatchet chicken. Pete, before we dive in, just want to thank everybody for continuing to tune in, to download, to click, to listen to our Iron Fist podcast. I can't believe, Pete, that we are at the one-third mark, give or take, as we uh, start episode 104 here. So certainly it's been a uh, it's been a great start to things and can't wait to, uh, to keep things moving. The reaction has been great. Uh, love hearing from people. And uh, yeah, onward and upward. Time to step inside the dojo and deconstruct this episode. Traffic bustles outside the uh, penthouse building where Harold Meacham is holed up, Matt. Uh, fix on a light stanchion, which suddenly, from above, Danny Rand falls and grabs onto. Uh, as he's... Uh, not quite sure he's going to pull through this one. He talks about dedicating himself to the service of all beings of Kun Lun before he loses his grip and falls to a ledge unconscious as we head into the title card. I had some mixed feelings on leaving the last episode with such great stakes. He's falling to his death and then resolving it in about 20 seconds. I mean, I get it. It's an end of episode hook and you know, we're certainly not going to have him land and now being a full body cast and all that. Just, I don't want to say sl slight story baloney. It's not even that far. It's just like, I see what you did there. Okay. You got me to come back for the next episode pretty quickly. Well done. Um, I also like the somewhat abstract way in which things start. You don't quite know what you're seeing until, uh, until Danny falls through the frame. But um, sure enough, as you said, we get the title sequence and we wake up. Good news, Pete. He's still not dead. Uh, he's waking up in what appears to be a pretty swanky place, Danny Rand is. And hey, as the camera pulls back, there's that arched ceiling revealing that we are in Harold's home. Ward finds him and says that Danny, Pete, he's trying to act like the gosh darn daredevil. GDDD, as I've written in my notes. <laughs> Not even the, he just says, yeah, like GD daredevil. Uh, with that, Danny Rand himself says that Ward is, as you quoted so wonderfully, Pete, he's pushing the limits of, of karma and, you know, because they're, they're, they're getting their grid up. Now, boys, says Harold, revealing to uh, Danny that Harold is alive. Obviously, now we know Danny knows it. Also noted, quickly, picking up on something that we have discussed uh, a little bit here and there already, Harold looks the same as he did 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, with that, it's pieced together that Harold, uh, indeed, in real life, had come to the hospital to see Danny. And uh, Harold says, you know, it's not every day someone comes back from the dead. So we good now? So Pete, are they good now? Well, how about that he had died himself? Uh, that that actually happened, that that wasn't a fake situation. Um, and that's where the, the line, not every day somebody comes back from the dead, takes on that, uh, that even deeper meaning. 
Uh, so they they have this embrace. Tells him he's home now. He's been waiting so long, three episodes in the beginning of this one to finally hear that. <laughs> um, but uh, how is he still alive? He was indeed diagnosed with cancer, and and not just cancer, Matt. Like killer forms of it: lung, pancreatic, the whole body. So the writers' room said, "We're we're not just going to make it nebulous. We're going to make it the worst possible things that he could have." He fought it for three years. Um, towards the end, he was barely a hundred pounds. To which um, Danny says, "Jesus." And Harold had a great line. Yeah, I tried him too. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a very soul-bearing scene. I think it continues to come with a little bit of an asterisk. Not that I doubt Harold's story, but to me, this is all under the umbrella of how how eager Danny is to to find a uh, a, a familiar father figure, mm-hmm. get that hug, that that hug. You're home now, um, Danny, the prodigal son, War Ward kind of shamed and off to the side um, even asking dad are you sure you should be saying this indeed pete you're starting to see why ward is a two-dimensional character there's actually a third dimension but it's it's kept in the shadows by by him trying to be the dutiful son um the dutiful son to harold who who to return to his uh his expositional uh flashback of sorts here he was dying he was approached with a cure by some people uh it placed him in their debt but he wasn't cured that's when i was like wait this sounds like the daredevils he wasn't cured he had to die first not daredevil himself of course just the fact that we had some some dying people dead people come back uh he he died though and three days later pete maybe that JC stuff did work out in some level. Three days later, he was breathing again. Pete, who was it who worked this miracle? This was uh, the the group that calls themselves the Hand. If you've seen season two of Daredevil, uh, you know that they have done this with other people. Electra has now gone through this as well, and uh, seemingly, at least based on his word and uh, the non-protestation of Ward that this happened as well with Harold, but it placed him in their debt. They did not tell him he needed to die first. He still remembers his last breath, how scary everything was and uh, to, to be back here. And uh, uh, he had mentioned, Danny had mentioned in the hospital, the hand that he's the sworn enemy of the hand and uh, describing it in the way that he does, like uh, it was a fairy tale in uh, Kunlun. He's never seen them, however, more like Satan and his demons than anything. He never thought he'd actually have to fight them. But uh, Harold reports they're very real and that thank goodness I have you, the sworn enemy of the hand now to get me out of my bargain with the devil wait pete just so i'm clear danny rand is the sworn enemy of the hand and harold meacham is is kind of somehow beholden to the hand and and under their thumb no pun intended and maybe danny will offer a way out for harold is this clear after four episodes (laughs) quite um side note i'm not saying that the show nor even the episode has a particular agenda but uh 
Danny saying, as you mentioned, Pete, Satan and his demons, calling them a fable. Uh, here we have Jesus tried that too. So take that Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, most importantly, though, maybe not most importantly, but certainly next, we get some boilerplate info about how Joy doesn't know. Or if she did know, she'd die uh, by way of the hand. She's got to be protected, you know, by, by helping Harold, please. Please to help Harold keep Joy alive, please. Batting the eyes, at least metaphorically, Harold does. And Pete, so we had the hand infesting Rand. By the way, what's the hand doing in Rand, man? Harold says that he doesn't know, but they show up with demands, man. Duh. And uh, with that, Harold <laughs> hugs him, tells him about the pier and Red Hook, um, and says that they've needed a fighter like Danny and the family. Take that, Ward. Yeah, right in front of Ward. Uh, I think Ward is as most three-dimensional in this episode as, as he's been yet, particularly in the wake of... Uh, seeing this reunion um having to be around for it and and i wouldn't say dishonor but just uh you know obviously pushed to the side by the the preferred uh son figure but uh uh joy uh doesn't want it obviously discussed with her um they're they're close danny and her um but uh he he's got to talk to her uh, about the peer stuff uh, since she closed the deal. And, um, hey, maybe I can teach you kung fu sometimes, uh, Danny notes, with all of the training gear scattered throughout the penthouse. Um, and maybe later we could, you know, throw the old pigskin around. Maybe <laughs> maybe catch a game at Yankee Stadium, have, have a hot dog. Odd that he tells Danny he's free to call or come by any time when um, it's such a big secret with everybody else that uh, Harold is alive. Uh, can't imagine the hand would want him to know. We'll, we'll reference that later because they do make reference to Danny. Um, but uh, in the elevator there, um, Ward warns Danny that he needs to watch out for himself. He says he's not afraid of the hand. He said he's talking about Harold. However, he's not a replacement for your father. Um, and the only person Harold cares about is Harold. Back we go to Colleen's dojo. Daryl is showing all the other students video from Secret Fight Club. Uh, Colleen. Underground Fight Club, U UFC, Matt. You, you may maybe you've heard of UFC. They're they're only allowed to use the initials so you don't talk about <laughs> the Underground Fight Club, which is the first and second rule of Underground Fight Club. You don't <laughs> not use the initials of Underground Fight Club. Regardless, Colleen shows there. She she breaks up the video watching, pulls Daryl to the side. He's posted it online. You know, Pete, like you do when you have footage of your sensei teacher secretly fighting for money your teacher somebody up absolutely um he figures that'll get more students that'll get more green into the dojo she doesn't like any of it and starts the class push down your ego and begin speaking of ego back we go to rand uh tower where ward has channeled dad 
and, you know, turned over that 51% to Danny. It's what dad would want, Joy. It really is. I've searched my heart and, you know, she could <laughs> Penthouse apartment. Um, Joy is shocked, but she doesn't deny that she turned the bowl over. Later on in the episode, we get outright confirmation of the, uh, the, the thing from last episode, which proved Danny was Danny. I guess. I, side note, Pete, I will overall appreciate that the show is not going through whatever the legal machinations would be to officially mm-hmm. un, un, unlegally dead uh, Danny and all that. I mean, it's probably terribly boring. It's probably a lot of, well, now let's do a CSI montage as they pull fingerprints and take testimony that this thing has existed for 15 years. I appreciate that. A little like, if it was like, good news, Danny, we just heard back from the old judge, you know, Wizenwand, and he's Giving us a clear path to continue. Throw me one line to just say there's legal machinations out there. Um, What's not clear, and it comes up in their conversation, it comes up later in the episode. Um, Ward says to her that uh, have you to thank for Monastery Boy and the Bowl. And we see her go back to the... um, the home in the previous episode and note the bowl. Um, And then she asks later if it's stolen. So is that read as she looked at it, she gave it to him and then she brings up a false story about it being stolen or did Danny in fact steal it? it? It's greatly unclear. I think by the end of the episode where she has confirmed in my mind, confirmed handing it over. Um, I I now retroactively take her claim of theft as kind of covering up within the moment. Um, regardless, I can, though, but here's the thing: it's it's confusing. True, and I think I think we continue to run into moments here and there where where this isn't this isn't the sharpest bit of of episodic scripting that we have seen. Uh, or episodic uh, guidance, or wh- how, whatever you want to put it. Um, there's kind of these little these little moments of choppy water. Um, regardless, though, still in Rand Tower, Danny arrives. He's nervous. Uh, he has a thin tie on that Ward says is effeminate. A touch Pete, effeminate. Pete, I had to wonder if this was both a, I'll say classy, but uh, there's a little sarcasm there. If this was a slightly cleaner way for Ward and the show to have Ward deploy a uh, an, an anti-homosexual slur without... I mean, look, if Ward said it, then the new controversy is going to be that the show is somehow condoning language like that and so on and so forth. But I wondered if it was kind of like the show can have its cake and eat it too by calling him effeminate when actually they mean, you know, blank. He, he, he's trying to, to deploy that word. I'm not quite sure. All I know is we get the... Uh, much glimpsed scene from much of the advertisement with uh, oh, Danny. Really? Oh, yeah. Danny heading towards the, the podium here after Ward has introduced him as the rightful heir. He'll continue the legacy set by uh, Wendell. Ward tells him to step up, stick to the page, and leave, which, of course, we not we know it's not going to go like that. Uh, Danny's nervous, which... 
guess I get a little bit, given that he's been trained in Kung Fu for 15 years, but I also don't get, given that he's meditated intensely and, you know, nothing seems to really rattle him emotionally. Um, you know, tugs at the tie there, smiles at Hogar. She shakes her head inappropriately. Um, and then reading off the page there about the long road to get back home. Yes, that's what Rand is. It's home. His father instilled the love and respect for this company um, that, that though he left uh, and they, they never reached the destination. He was rescued by monks. It's all the story that we know, but he's telling it to the public, to, to an assembled uh, group of journalists there. And that he was taught the value of life and hard work Rand matters to him. And then they open it up to questions of which Jennifer Manny of the New York Bulletin, I guess Karen Page was busy that day, um, asked, is it true that he had recently been committed to the Birch Psychiatric Hospital under the care of Dr. Paul Edmonds? And he takes the question and says, yes. Joy reacts like, oh, my God, here we go. Uh, this is not sticking to the script, as Ward asked him to. But Danny spins trouble into gold. He explains here that coming back was very overwhelming and the joy and ward um, had guided him to Dr. Edmonds before ward ends the press conference. I wonder how that would have played on the news that night. Do you, do you, I mean, you're probably going to devote two, maybe three minutes to this. Does that question and some of the perceived hubbub make it on the nightly news even or is it just you know there were some questions about this and you know do we cut give the clip of i got so much nice help especially thanks to the people behind me you know i i just it certainly didn't seem to come off as this damning you know is he or isn't he insane we um, will discuss news analysis a little later in this episode matt back after this uh, the press conference wrap, that's the presser, as you say in the biz. Um, and it, at this point, the show felt oddly in new territory. I'm not saying lacking momentum, but it's kind of like now we're switching from the end of multiple introductions to he's here, he's back, what's next? He asks to meet with Joy about uh, the peer. She pushes it off to her assistant, who pushes off Danny to a meeting in two or three days. Uh, however, his first meeting is here. It's Hogarth. So um, a little momentum picking up there. Uh, Hogarth takes him to uh, Danny's dad's old office. There's even dad's old desk. She wants him to sign the papers pronto, lest uh, something happen and all this go away. Um, he notes that underneath the desk there are the stickers that he used to put there. Um, in fact, they are still there. Uh, what's his job exactly? Well, Pete, like the best billionaires out there, he actually doesn't have a job. <laughs> He's just like the most powerful board member and stuff. Really um, frees him up to fight crime, if you think about it. Absolutely. Oh, oh, oh no, Pete, you mentioned that. Uh, Batman's like that, and Batman was made in the 1930s, and now Danny Rand is a billionaire. It's so derivative, Pete. Oh, and, and Tony Stark was made in the 60s, and he's a, a millionaire slash billionaire, too. Why is it all so derivative, Pete? Why couldn't they just have done something fresh and original and new in this adaptation of a of a 40-year-old comic series? Well, at least Danny has his parents around, right? Oh. Cl click here. Click here to, to, to see my analysis of how it's all derivative. Click here. 
but I digress, Pete. Pete, I hope you didn't feel like that was a hostile takeover because (laughs) that's what a lot of people would have felt like at Randco with him just walking on in there like he's a hostile takeover. Bottom line, though, is Hogarth leaves. It's not clear what to do next, what he's to do next. Um, Danny hammers it home. What happens after he signs the papers? And Pete, he, once he's alone, he looks a little bit like a boy playing pretend businessman and uh, certainly some sympathy there. I like how Hogarth has angled in here, but she's not going to do it for him, tells him, you know, this is a great opportunity and not to foul it up, <laughs> um, you know, for, for being, uh, you know, 15 uh, S words into 16, I should say, into this series at this point, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to draw the line in the golden sand someplace, Matt, but uh, we'll, we'll come to lines in the sand in just a little bit. She asks him, door open, door closed. She's not going to do it for him. These are billable hours. She's all business here, uh, even with the little emotional flourish towards not screwing up the legacy that her father, I'm sorry, his father, her uh, first boss, laid down. But uh, it's from there that he decides he'll see what's going around uh, up in Rand Tower. He heads into the Leishmaniasis uh, board meeting uh, where they're learning from Ward. There are 12 million people currently infected in 98 countries. This is a, a scourge to which uh, the Rand Pharmaceutical Division, of course, has an anti-parasitic antimonial uh, ready to head out there uh, with far-reaching effects. This is their pricing strategy. There's a great moment there when um, Danny enters and pulls the chair all the way around and inserts himself next to Joy. It was very evocative of uh, Game of Thrones with uh, Tyrion and the small council pulling one all the way around um, and clearly irking Ward. But uh, with this medicine that's going to cover Asia, Africa, South and Central America, and even Eastern Europe, they can make it in bulk for a price of less than $5 per pill. And uh, the character, Matt, I have uh, in my notes as businessman, says that we can then sell it for $50 a dosage. It will fund new research and give a nice boost to our profit margin by putting the research thing up front. It seems slightly more philanthropic than, oh, and we'll just make a profit margin. Um, But Danny, as uh, the outsider, will actually learn the, uh, the, the word, the term for that a little later. Um, asks, well, how many people die from this? And Ward points out that if it's left untreated, the latest numbers say 50,000 a year. So they can save lives at $5 a pill and they want to raise the price. And uh, businessman says he knows how it looks there, but that's how it's done. And Danny asserts that they should sell at cost, which meets scoffs. Joy softens it here it's not how it works this is normal business then maybe normal is not the best path to take 
we can make our profits elsewhere. And businessman comes back with that they know how to do this, Mr. Rand. The World Health Organization will make most of the purchases. They'll subsidize for third world countries. It's all it's all very normal and expected and the way we make billions of dollars at the expense of suffering of other people. Although he left that out and Danny's quick to point that out. Here's my problem with the scene. And and let me preface this by saying I'm all for pointing out fictional and, and real evils by big pharma. Uh, I'm all for um, people getting the, the medical attention that they need, particularly on, on, this day that we are recording, March 24th, 2017, in which the leaders of our country have, have affirmed that as an important thing today through inaction. Um, so I'm, I'm down to make this the, the MCU version of that guy, and I won't even, I won't even lower the podcast by, by mentioning his name, but you know that pharma guy who had the $1 pill that he was selling for $700 apiece or whatever that's just an odious human being. This ratio of it costs five dollars but we're going to sell for 50 i you know so again i'm coming with all this stuff of let's get as many healthy people as possible and so on and so forth here's my problem with the writing i'm not particularly offended at the 50 dollar price point we don't know we don't know how much it costs for r&d to get this so certainly we you know we live in a world where where um Private companies are doing all sorts of research. They, at the very least, should break even. Now, do I think Rand is out to break even? No. They said they want to make a tidy profit. But I, I guess I kind of feel like in in a world where we're being told, again, just the writing here. Morally, I'm totally with Danny. If this is a real-world situation, I'm with Danny. But in a world where we're being told, you know, it's $50 a pill and the World Health Organization is going to subsidize most of it, um, and people will be able to get it, and the people who made it will be able to be rewarded, at the very least, with profit, which I'm a little less comfortable with, but maybe the money that they make, at best, is going to go to to, to get further vaccines and so on and so forth. To me, kind of this $5 to $50 ratio, to me, is, you know, if they made it 5 to 500 then it would be, well, that's ridiculous because what sick person in this situation in, in, in a third world com- country is going to have uh, $500? But if you say 50 and it's subsidized by the World Health Organization, then uh, writing-wise, totally purely kind of in the fiction of it, I'm, a little, I'm, I'm much less sympathetic. Well, where I take offense at it, you know, when we've lived through uh, the, the Screlly case you referenced before, the Pharma bruh, and then the EpiPen lap of the last six to eight months um, with very clear price gouging. And it particularly resonated with me. We're not going to compare this fictional um, cure to leishmaniasis to these diseases or uh, afflictions, but you know, could you imagine if Big Pharma had had gotten uh, Pasteur before the the pasteurization process, or Jonas Salk with the polio vaccine, and and turning these into massive profits? And Danny, as the center of this scene, as majority shareholder, but also as a man of Buddhist principles, 
who's been away for 15 years, immersed in that, recentering this. And rightly by the end of the episode, you know, I was concerned when we get the, the journalist in to talk to Ward later, as you know, you might imagine, even though it's the New York Bulletin as some kind of Wall Street Journal-esque uh, proxy, she was agreeing at one point, wait, you know, could have sold it for 50 and they're selling it for five. What a, what a numbskull businessman is he? He's in over his head. And instead it's, it's not spun. It's the truth that they're going to cut their profits elsewhere. Or at least that's what they're saying that, that we're going to sell this for what they make it for. They'll do what it costs and they will help other people. I, I, again, I, I feel like in the real world, I'm completely with Danny, but I think that there was, there, somehow there was a softening in this scene that just made me say, well, I mean, shouldn't you be able to make a couple of bucks just to, 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 to make back what you put in, at least theoretically? But bottom line, um, we have, we have uh, Danny you know, mandating this as, as the, the shareholder. Side note, and maybe the, our, our listeners out there who have some more business acumen than you and I could comment on this, I did wonder to what degree a majority shareholder could dictate a day-to-day business decision like pricing strategy for one pill, you know, which is presumably from the pharma division from this larger company that also does real estate and so on and so forth. Um, I just didn't know if there was like a corporate governance thing where it's like, no, no, you can't be involved in day-to-day decisions like this. I don't know. I'm just, you know, question out there for for our wiser listeners who are who are in, enjoying the the Wall Street Journal every day. Um, this is a perfect time though, Pete, for Joy to say, you know what? Let's go talk about that peer deal. Her schedule just cleared up. It was amazing. With a look from Ward, it 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 was miraculously cleared out. And uh with with the the peer talk Getting underway, we see Colleen wrapping her hands. She's preparing to demolish the the wooden fighting dummy there. She puts on the, the hippity-hop music about hanging and banging and slanging and then breaks off the left arm of that dummy and says the S-word twice. Certainly a scene of her power. She seems to be working out some things emotionally. And then she goes back to watching the video of herself. Certainly start, we will find, is, is kind of reassessing her role in Underground Fight Club. Back we go to Harold's home. He's popping pills. He's drinking his green shake, Pete. He's making sure he's he's regular and healthy and all that. <laughs> he's looking at the New York Bulletin website about Danny's day one. Um, he gives Ward a call, who pops his own pill. Oh, don't think we had forgotten about seeing Must that already. Must have leishmaniasis show. or something. Well, at least he can, you know, Pete, anybody who can afford $50 a pill deserves it. Um, anyhow, uh, he answers the phone call from dad. How's Ward going to handle this reporter problem? Somehow. And if he does, that'll make up for that little drug pricing mistake. You know, that's a good boy, son. Love ya, click. But no. he, whoa, he puts it back at dad. He says he's not the one that put Danny out there. And now, son, it's not time to point fingers. It's a time for solutions. Pete, it's almost like Harold Meacham, this this uh, 
blonde-haired man living in the tower, isolated from the common man, is willing to take all of the credit, none of the blame, is willing to cut bait as soon as there is trouble, is willing to take his, uh, his, his affection, his love, uh, and, and shine it towards anyone who will further his cause, then pull it back just the same, because, as Ward said, Harold is all about himself. It, it's, it's, Pete, this degree of fiction writing really is astonishing. Is this fake news that the New York Bulletin is pushing? Well, uh, poor Megan has to get that reporter in, and uh, he, Ward, will answer all of her questions tonight. Tonight. Meanwhile, in the streets of New York City, look like maybe some Times Square in the background, Joy and Danny are walking. They're talking. Pete, it's a walk and talk. They're talking about the past. Uh, he once wore a comfortable robe and everything back in the, in the monastery. Uh, she says that he wasn't wrong in, in taking this view regarding the pill pricing, but swinging his 51% shareholder D was probably not the way to do it. Pete, I, she can I talk love... like the boys because she's, she's an independent woman. I love that she's the saltier of, of the two children to this point. Um, it, it's a, it's maybe the thing I appreciate the most about an otherwise pretty milquetoast character. Um, but with everything that they discuss here, um, talking about the, the, the bowl comes up, um, that his reemergence dredged up so many memories for her and um, made her think uh, about the people she'd lost and everything there that uh, her parents, uh, or I'm sorry, his parents, her mom, her dad, that um, Danny has to remind her that uh, her father really cared for her and uh, that she says Danny's lucky um, he didn't have to see Harold at the end, again, reinforcing that story early on and that the joy is truly not aware of his um, existence at this point. Um, but she's she's looked at the person she's become. She's not liked it at this point, and um, she wants to do the right thing. Uh, indeed, with that, back we go to Ding Ding Fight Night, the daughter of the dragon heading to the ring. And Pete, she's not impressed with one fighter. She asks for two, and when she beats him, double that payday. She wants to fight more than the Duke, so the MC adds Jimmy Pierce. It's Jimmy Pierce, Pete, you know, of Fight Club. Or who I also refer to as uh, Broke Ass Vin Diesel, B-A-V-D. <laughs> Uh, the MC reminds her and ostensibly the other guys that it's uh, it's tap out or knockout. With that, the cage is locked. This fight, it's not the poetry of the Daredevil hallway. This is just a good old-fashioned butt-kicking at the hands of Colleen Wing. She gets blood on her, her opponent's blood. She seems to like it. Yeah, there's... And following up this scene a little later on, there's some curious... Uh, blocking as far as her enjoyment of it, but, you know, getting stuck under the Duke at one point, getting dragged out by Pierce and, you know, ultimately taking him uh, to town 
with the beating before we wind up with Danny and Joy in the uh, the Hogarth uh, appointed suite. The sweet, sweet pad. Uh, he asks her, Danny asking Joy, why the pier was bought. Joy didn't ask why. She just followed the leadership of her brother. He's led this company through success after success. So, of course, she would blindly follow. Pete, I wonder if blind allegiance to that family is going to end up uh, in some sort of spectacular flame out. But I digress. Danny relates this to getting a job he wanted, Iron Fist, a job that was available at the monastery to become the Iron Fist. He said that it was a Shao Gi Lao, or it was said that a Shao Gi Lao couldn't do it. That's an outsider, Pete, but you know what? He did. Uh, I wonder if that was a controversial casting decision at the monastery. (laughs) Wow. Matt, going meta for the win there. Um, But it's interesting. The job he wanted, he didn't think through why he wanted it. Um, Though that outsider, the Shao Wei Lao, sounded uh mean and uh kind of cool to be the outsider coming in and competing for this uh he mistook his stubborn will for a sense of destiny or something but he got the job he fought the whole way he worked hard and um now being back in new york uh you know takes on a little bit of a different resonance when it comes to this he explains the the big differences with where he's living now with where he lived before in a six by six room with a dirty mat on the floor he was responsible for um going uphill every day to get he and his shifu's daily ration of water uh with torso sized jugs and that was the easy part um you get the the training sounds over the discussion here that he trained all day, every day, fighting, sparring. Every moment was a struggle. Failure led to beating, victory to the next style, to the next lesson. Joy points out that it sounds like abuse, but it made him what he is today, which is what? Another guy living in a deluxe apartment in the sky. Pete, it does sound like those things to Joy. Uh, it, it, of course, does not look like those things to Joy, nor us, since the 6 by 6 room, the pot to wee-wee in, going uphill for water, training and training and training, beatings, success, and future fighting styles are all told, not shown. Um, Some probably, sounds, though. That's true. And <laughs> Okay, on the one hand, that's the low-hanging fruit to say, bad show bad bad series you showed not or you told not showed um i suppose there's a flip side argument which is if it's difficult to to conceive of this monastery and if it's if it's something that they don't want to show because of its mystical nature and how do you make one of the capitals of heaven and let's show as little as possible i'll grant you this is a writerly way around it is to just have your two your two uh or two of your leads talk about it but pete enough talking knock knock on the door joy goes to answer it while uh while danny works on making a vodka tonic for her that's vodka and tonic she screams and pete men are there they're starting to take her men (laughs) eight men and pete this looks like more footage from new york comic-con it is indeed. We saw, again, a version of this scene. Eight men, four with uh, two hatchets each. So that's eight men, eight hatchets. 
uh, Danny takes on the pose there and with his uh, dodging uh, fighting style, a little bit of slow motion. Um, we note that the elevator is on the way up from the 38th floor. They are on the 39th floor. It opens. They get in with joy. Danny rushes it. He puts his hand, his arm in, um, and then one of them goes to take the hatchet to it, which he quickly iron fists it away and ricochets. Um, the uh, the light is hit and an emergency red lighting and alarm sound. And Danny steps on in at the 39th floor. I particularly enjoyed what we didn't see of this sequence it starts with an overhead shot and then we have several split screens i found it particularly comic booky joy even gets involved at one point after having been punched in front of the elevator on the way in before the door opens at the lobby and danny's kind of covering joy and in mandarin one of them says with the subtitle uh back to the golden sands figuring this uh Shuigao wouldn't speak mandarin right pete you should not make assumptions like that not in this modern interconnected world that fight indeed a super fun visual style i think that they've realized that some of the kind of heavy brawler stuff that is more uh conducive to the other defenders shows you don't get that here by virtue of his uh his martial arts training so play towards that that lighter uh, fighting style, play towards the fun of it. Um, that split-screen action there, indeed, Pete, a little reminiscent of the comic book panel visuals done in Ang Lee's Hulk movie, just done right this time. So that was uh, <laughs> that was all fun indeed. The story moves to Ward, who's spilling everything to the reporter. They were all set to save millions of lives and research uh, was going to get funded. Danny Tarzan. Indeed. Pete, do you think that this is proof? Because listen, let me just pause here for one second, Pete. We know of a pal who guaranteed two days before uh, Iron Fist came out that we were going to be getting uh, Punisher news, you know, that weekend. Guaranteed it. Maybe it wasn't Punisher news, but rather Marvel's The Tarzan. <laughs> Is that what this is a, a hint towards? It's it's not. We're we're playing with the again the the trope, the the noble savage, if you will. And what is not quite clear is this ward um, attempting to do what his father said and to control the story, or not understanding with the look at the end of the episode that this would play positively and ingratiate Danny with the public. Manny doesn't so much let on as she does absorb here and they're drinking bourbon and it's late at night and Ward is being rather uh, candid, which is never a way to be in these particular situations um, have having been on the reportorial end of it, um, this would be a field day. And, um, like I said before, there's, there's a moment when you believe that Manny might be like, wait a minute, he wanted to sell it at cost. What, what kind of, 
chucklehead on the street is trying to do that at, at a loss of hundreds of millions. This, this is not how to get away, how to get ahead in business. He even calls uh, Danny. He says Danny is worse than those bleeding heart liberal trust fund hipsters wandering Williamsburg, Matt. He, he was pretty particular there. But the reporter stops recording with her phone. Uh, she thanks him for the interview, calls Ellison, uh, and with her early morning deadline, uh, she's she's uh, planning on the front page, Matt, that Karen Page not get that front page because, you know, cub reporters get the front page at the New York Bulletin. Well... Pete, there, I think there's a deleted scene with Ellison that we will discuss in a little while. Uh, first, though, back at the dojo we go. Colleen is licking her wounds. Uh, Danny and Joy arrive. Do you know anything about the golden sands, she's asked. And uh, pretty quickly, expositions that they're triads. And uh, Danny has basically been quick to go straight to see them. Anything else you want to mention from that scene, Pete? The the name there, the Yangshi Gongsi, which comes back around uh, with that organization once he winds up in the Golden Sands restaurant, the hostess attempts to help. Uh, he says he's there to see the head of the Yangshi Gongsi clan. Uh, and though he doesn't want trouble, uh, Yang, the old man there, tells him he shouldn't have come looking for it. There are uh, toughs in a sling one is on crutches already <laughs> um and this discussion in mandarin uh reveals uh to yang that this is the one who bested them he is yang high king uh head of the yangshi gongsi and uh danny is respectful explaining that he is the uh the same danny rand of rand enterprises they had business with uh, Joy. They wanted to talk because there was an understanding with the previous tenant about the pier. Joy broke that. However, Danny sees right through it. You wanted to kidnap her to broker a new deal. Maybe we use you for a new deal, Yang says. Um, but interesting how this ultimately goes. Explaining to them, which doesn't show a lot of control over the company that another group forced them to purchase which uh yang calls out who could force this massive enterprise the hand gulp i had no idea please extend our deepest apologies to miss meacham i agree it doesn't reflect great on the company but i think that the the yang shugansi are clearly um you know, a crime family. So the idea of behind the scenes deals and things of that sort is, you know, it's not foreign territory for them. And certainly all of this feeds that notion of these are some bad dudes, but if they're willing to pack it up and apologize and apologize and leave as soon as possible, that is, um, that is certainly, you know, it's showing that how bad the hand is by reputation, whether you've perhaps forgotten it from the other shows or haven't seen the other shows. Um, Again, overall, a super effective scene to me. Back we go to Harold's place. He's, he's beating the old boxing bag. Um, something gets dropped on the floor. It's another bag. <laughs> what's in the bag? Uh, ironically, what's about to be in the bag is similar to what's in the box. But I digress. 
um, men are there. There's a wide shot that shows the the distinctive shadow of Madame Gao. Um, he he uh, puts the black bag on, and they uh, turns out they're going somewhere, which we're not going to see right now because Pete, take us back to the dojo. Colleen is with Joy, and uh, Joy is working on that wooden dummy there. Uh, the backstory that she's aware of Colleen that um, the the two uh, Danny and Joy grew up together. The joke was they were pledged to be married, um, which is interesting given that uh, Colleen's currently the 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 one in the crosshairs romantically, it seems for Danny. Um, but with, uh, the, the way he was as a child, he was kind. Uh, if you told joy that one day he would fight off men with axes, correction hatchets, she wouldn't have believed it, but Hey, they're not a problem anymore. Uh, the talk didn't happen with fists, but a sharing of ideas and Danny asking uh, them a bunch of questions about uh, who they are and why they would uh, need the peer that uh, the Yangshi Gongsi didn't exactly answer. Uh, also in this, uh, in, in this scene, he notices that Colleen's finger is, I initially thought broken, but I think we're about to find out dislocated. Uh, regardless, though, he can fix it. This is not, what is the saying, his first rodeo? Uh, he tells her to count down from three in Mandarin to fix it. Though, of course, he pops the, the bone, the joint into place uh, on the first number. Um, I think that was a scene you could see coming from a mile away. But that's, that's that, Pete, that's what you do when you need to relocate someone's uh, disjointed joint. Um, he also, now as this newly minted billionaire, uh, he offers Colleen to, to make good on the deal. Offers her six months of rent. She declines, Pete. Interesting scene. Um, certainly speaks to her level of independence and things of that sort. But how do you turn down six months of rent? Also noting that uh, though he's not judging, he fought in a few illegal fight clubs on his way back from Kunlun. Um, so the subject centers back to what they are going to tell Ward here. Uh, if he finds out that men with hatchets came after his sister, he will go to the cops as he has threatened before, or maybe even worse with private security people to, to finish jobs here. Um, and uh, Danny uh, and Joy still want to know what was going on with the events of tonight. Meanwhile, Harold, uh, has his hood taken off. He's been a good and faithful servant of the hand. The peer has been secured. Uh, now receive your reward. Curtain is pulled, and uh, he's able to see Joy, who's been dropped off now at her uh, home through the window. Hasn't seen her in person since she was a child, something we speculated did that potentially happen at her school? Was that part of the, the dreamlike memory she's had uh, in the previous episode? But he notices from super far away, someone has hit her. Indeed, Pete, uh, all of this made possible by the fact that Joy, as a woman living in, in her own building in, uh, in Manhattan, uh, you know, a couple stories off the ground in a very public area. She, of course, cleans up in her bedroom with her shades completely open, um, as you do. 
Um, it's not like you're 50 stories up and who cares? You're, you're two or three stories up. It, it's what you do. Um, who hit her? Uh, some criminals, says Madame Gao. Luckily, she's got a great bodyguard. Um, with that, Harold, a good and faithful servant, he notes, asks for one more favor. And I, I will admit, Pete, we've been doing so much kind of intercutting of scenes here, you know. Harold brought by Madame Gao, then to the dojo, back to Harold, and kind of this sort of pattern that when we move to the next scene, where there's an SUV pulling up to the side of the street, masked men in kind of vaguely ninja garb coming out and going into a Chinese restaurant, I in no way thought that the scene was continuing. Uh, they're there to see uh, to to see the occupants of the of the restaurant who hit Joy Meacham. The guilty man steps forward. He pulls out two axes, but he gets a very, very heavy katana to the head. Um, from like, a man who emerges from the group. Indeed. And and that sword, ridiculously thick, a, a heavy sword, a sword a stout, and it, uh, it kills the man in one blow on his bald head there. And back into the SUV, we see that that figure has the sword in his hand, takes the mask off, and it's Harold. He done the murder, Matt. He's ready to go home. Murder, death, kill. Murder, death, kill. Uh, that morning, Ward opens the biz section of the Bolton. Pete, that's not, not the, the front, front page. page. Pete, let me tell you what Harold happened got here. the front page? Ellison, ready for some real great front page news, had, uh, what's her name, Manny? Jennifer Manny, yeah. Jennifer Manny came back and said, relayed the whole Danny Rand, you know, good pharma story. And he said, that's news. But you know what? That's not front page news. That's just, this is just an inexperienced businessman doing something that's really, really nice. This goes on the front page of the business section because it's notable business, but it's otherwise just kind of a, a feel-good story. It does not go on the front page of this, the New York Bulletin. Regardless, though, Ward reads about it. Danny Rand, corporate hero. Oops. Um, well, the headline, uh, the subheadline, majority stakeholder mandates purpose over profit, right alongside uh, uh, another story about a hedge fund failing. So very clearly the writer's room taking a, a shot at greed and scoring one for uh, philanthropy. Um, but noted again, this is the business section, not the front page could have, Matt, given the fact that the bulletin is a tabloid, could have had what we we, we refer to as a reefer, a, a little something on the front page, C, you know, B2. Well, I, I think that uh, Ms., uh, Ms. Manny should be pretty proud with that, uh, with that, that article nonetheless last scene here we're in danny's apartment of sorts uh he's training while he gets a knock on the door pete i must admit it didn't catch my eye in that first scene as he's training that his back was to us when he opens the door a little bit of a strange shot very kind of extreme angle i noticed the extreme angle it didn't occur to me that they were preventing us from seeing his his chest uh at all uh he does open the door he sees a red covered bowl there are some axe symbols on top uh, the note in there says, this is the answer for what you seek. It's from Yang Hai Quing. 
And uh, Pete, there's more under the note. We didn't get to see that, though. Although we do get to see shirtless Danny Rand. Well, beneath the note, there is a heroin bundle with a red stamp. Oh, is that Uh, what that was? Yes. I guess I don't know what heroin bundles look like, Pete. Back to you. (laughs) Heroin, Pete. Hang on. I was just chasing a dragon. Uh, Of which, Matt, there is a serpent logo we have seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe um, Defender TV shows here stamped upon heroin bundles before. Think brand. These these have real-life dumb stupid things that are stamped on uh drugs like you know simpsons characters and beavis and butthead and dumb stuff like this uh because you know it's a brand that they appropriate from some real thing and make their own but um the lining up of the logo of the heroin bundle and then the tattoo of danny ran reveals that the serpent part on both are identical. Danny's tattoo has wings. Sparring partners. Let's take a look at who Danny faced off against in this episode. Pete, thinking himself in the superior position, but ending the episode with his tail between his legs, it's Ward. Yeah, and I I remain confident that this is as three-dimensional as we've ever seen him. Forget just scowling and forget, hey, I'm going to bark out stuff and, uh, you know, sulk over to the side. Here, truly hurt with uh, the way that his father takes to Danny, um, noting to Danny not to get too uh, close, too attached, to Harold, who only cares about himself, and um, either allowing Danny to make this move through, um, you know, his his lack of a fight, and even clarifying it for Danny in that meeting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, d- just back it up for me, Danny. Are you saying? Are you saying with your fifty-one percent shareholder? Oh, something in my eye, wink. This is what you want to do to control this meeting here. You are going to tell us to put this drug for cost. Ah, okay. Pete, we see here in this episode, New Jersey's own Tom Pelfrey playing, uh, playing the character of Ward Meacham, certainly bringing more pathos, more, more of that heartfelt, but dad, can't I make you happy? than we have seen thus far. And I, for one, welcome this graduate of Howell High School to uh, to increase the dimensionality of his character as he has in this episode. It's a better word if a um, not quite clear, nefarious versus self-serving ward. Um, you know, they, they've done this, but never at this level to this point in the series. Pete, next on the list must be that entire Golden Sands crew uh, from the capo all the way down to the guy who now was close to being decapotated. Uh, <laughs> your thoughts there on the Golden Sands bunch? The the necessary evil of this group wielding hatchets, showing up in that hallway, going to abduct Joy. It played 
for a moment when they showed up, not having been introduced to how this scene began, almost like it was a stage situation. Like, Danny, you make the drink. Oh, no, wait, these people are taking me now who just told me to scream and we're going to look like it's a fight. So I, I truly did wonder whether that was a setup. Um, but to obviously have Harold, uh, you know, fly off the handle to the end of the sword uh, where he puts it between this guy's uh, forehead um, you know, clearly lets us know they're bad. They're just not bad enough. They are afraid of the hand, probably with good reason. Well, and and you mention the the third baddie on our list there, the uh, the revelation that we have, Harold the Executioner. <laughs> I did not. I watched this episode twice. I did not put that together on first blush. And then on the second viewing, watching that he gets into the SUV with the sword um, and and the body language of the man who uh, puts the, the sword between his eyebrows there is decidedly different than all of the others in that hooded hand group. Time to focus our chi and look inside this episode. Matt, we'll begin with the beginning of this episode where Danny invokes his uh, dedication to the service of all beings of Kunlun. Not people, uh, not people and animals, beings. What do you make of that? Well... Knowing a little bit of some of the uh, some of the mystical reputation of that place, I suppose it gives it gives that best setup for for I don't know mystical creatures of some sort um, happening down the line. Whether it's this season, whether it's Defenders, whether it's an Iron Fist season two, uh, and so forth. Um, perhaps it is an attempt to acknowledge those things without including them. Uh, I'm reminded of the quip. By the uh, by, uh, Peter Jackson and some of the others involved with Lord of the Rings, that just because you don't see Tom Bombadil doesn't mean that they didn't go and spend four days with Tom Bombadil. The movie just didn't show it or plan to show it ever. So maybe it's kind of that you know that to bring back a phrase from earlier in this podcast. Maybe it's a sort of uh, have your cake and eat it too kind of thing. Well, we know that there are dragons that uh, Danny has mentioned. Uh... Shulao, the Undying, which is the dragon that he gains the power of the Iron Fist from by defeating it. Um, so it's at the very least a tantalizing idea. Uh, Kunlun being extra dimensional, there are aliens as well. Um, not quite the, uh, the the Kree situation that we know has gone on in this Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. How about Harold's death, Matt? Did he actually die? Was this metaphor? We just have his story. Well, I know from some of the other dealings with the hand that we've seen uh, in uh, in Daredevil, we've seen uh, the dead returning and things of that sort. I buy it at face value that he he did die, or at least 
I mean, uh, how about this? I'll say die in a, in a lay person's sense, by which I mean he he thought he was experiencing death the way you know any one of us might, you know, when trapped under the ice or that sort of thing. Um, I have no doubt that he was at the very at the very edge of life at best, and then made his way back through the uh, through the care of the hand. Um, but yeah, I, I I will accept it whole hog that he he did indeed die in in whatever sense you want to put it. And that they were able to to bring him back, Pete. On a similar topic, here's one for you. What's in what's in the, uh, the concoctions that he has? What is it that he, that is trying to be maintained other than a life force of sorts? Um, is it merely that he's trying to maximize the second chance, or is there something truly life giving in his uh, various pills and uh, green shakes and such? I like the idea that he's he's trying to live a little better this time around. Uh, lung cancer um, can be brought on by cigarette smoking, even secondhand smoke, but it can also develop on its own in non-smokers. Pancreatic cancer is one of the most brutal cancers. It's not clear what exactly causes that, if not a genetic abnormality. So maybe he's, as a businessman, just hedging his bets uh, despite receiving the, the gift of a second life from a nefarious crime organization that real-world criminals are afraid of and don't know have gotten into the resurrection uh, pharmaceutical uh, market. Um, the hand rand infestation, Matt, um, how exactly does that work? that this organization infests a corporate giant? Uh, I mean, I think, <laughs> well, let's see. Do I, do I go the fictional route or the vaguely realistic route? Pete, imagine an organization like perhaps, uh, perhaps um, S.H.I.E.L.D. or perhaps, you know, the FBI, that um, there exists within it a... a minority faction um i don't mean minority in the cultural a fifth sense, column is that but, what we're, we're going here well uh, in essence yes you know like hey you have views similar to me let's promote that so that we can make sure that we we take down the baddies when we need to take down the baddies we need to act when we need to act um so we'll stick with hydra for a moment we saw that happen with hydra um and that sort of dogmatic dedication to uh, a particular point of view, I, I would have to think that whether it's outright hand members or, you know, friend of hand, but I know their hand, or like, hey, that's my boss, Mr. Smith. Uh, he, he and I have had some real good conversations. I helped him out with a couple side projects when I came in on the weekend, not knowing that it's actually nefarious hand stuff. That's kind of how I read it. This company this company has that, that you know, a, a second layer of loyalty in it amongst uh, key people. It's funny that you chose Hydra as an example when we have a heroin bundle marked with a serpent. Indeed. Pete, one last question for you. And I don't mean to bring it back to Harold's health and to his, uh, to his uh, health juice. I'm wondering if maybe we are setting up some sort of... I know, I know you're all seeing all-knowing Pete, so this is coming from me as uh, spoiler-free Matt. I wonder if we're going to reach a point where... All those years suddenly catch up with him, kind of uh, Indiana Jones 3 style, <laughs> where, oh no, I haven't had my juice, or whatever it is, and then it's, 
you know, th- then the hair whitens and the, the, the beard comes popping out and he's, he's just turned into skeleton and ash. Frank and Stein. I mean, anything's possible. Let's look at some messages from the mystical city of Kulun. Pete, first up, a comment on our webpage. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, comment on fantasticgeek.com. Anonymous, by the way, Pete, uh, saying the no figure. No, it might be the hand. <laughs> you never know. And Pete, it's it's someone who's talking about hands. Um, no fingerprints are necessary for a U.S. passport. I just applied for a passport for my 11-year-old daughter five weeks ago. She did not have to be fingerprinted, and I've never had—I've never been fingerprinted for my passport. Um, I could have sworn that when I took my daughter to be finger—not uh, uh, fingerprinted—to be uh, to get a passport um, a little over a year ago, I could have sworn that. She had that she was fingerprinted. I could be wrong, and to be fair, I have not checked with my wife. Um, but as luck would have it, Pete, in the next couple weeks, my wife and I are going to be uh, renewing our own passport. So I'm going to report too. back. Us too. Wow. So, yeah, it's it's funny that I guess the deadline's coming up. <laughs> the, the, listeners, this is what we do. We we separately plan trips and want to be prepared, and so we're going to go get passports all for you guys. Uh, Pete, next up, we have a pair of emails, and uh, these emails come to us courtesy of uh, Bruce R. Houghton, um, who says, subject line, hey guys, I love your show, then he continues, but, there's always a but, uh, there's one thing that's been bothering me lately, it's that you seem to be taking a lot of pot shots at your fellow podcasters. It may just be joshing, but absent of any indication of lightheartedness or joking, it comes off as pretty snide. Uh, I think I am far from the only person who listens to both podcasts. I've recognized names uh, when you read letters. When you mock three-hour podcasts, fanishness, giggling, and the like, it's pretty obvious who you're talking about, which is a shame because they seem to hold you in great respect. Um, your podcasts are completely different and provide different services to fans, so there's no need to be competitive about it. I may be reading this all wrong, but I have to say that that's how it comes off to me. Uh, not intended for publication, but you can if you want. It's up to you. Um, and uh, he says he's going to send one with kind of more more Iron Fist thoughts there. So, Pete, your response is, is there the great feud out there? There's not the great feud. It's a, it's a great email, and that definitely helps to hear. Um, I would hope that uh, anything that we would say over the mic would be understood that that this is not said with with malice and that said we we do provide a a different product um than some of the other uh stuff that's out there so uh helps to hear that and to be mindful of that indeed everything that we do all in good fun much love and some of the uh, some of the best experiences we've had out there in the wild especially new york comic-con have been with uh have been with some of our some of our podcast pals who make podcasts of their own so 
Pete, second email, more uh, more directly square to uh, Iron Fist, again from Bruce. He says, my take on this whole kerfuffle is that there was never any intent to cast an Asian actor in the role because it would totally defeat the purpose of the show, which is to set up a salt and pepper partnership for Luke Cage in The Defenders. Danny Rand is the canonical salt to his pepper, the rich white guy to his small town black guy, the Riggs to his Murtaugh, the Gene Wilder to his Richard Pryor, etc. <laughs> Making him Asian American would have totally changed that dynamic. That is the only reason for making this show and using this character, which is admittedly kind of dated and dopey. If they wanted an Asian lead, they would have used a different character instead of taking Iron Fist out of mothballs. Also, I think a lot of guilty white liberal writers slash podcasters, etc. are uh, making the mistake of thinking Asians are a monolith on this thinking. I've seen plenty of Asians in comment sections saying, oh really, you want us to be the Kung Fu guy again? Why don't you give us Spider-Man, Iron Man, or the Hulk? This whole thing has set the show up to fail from the start because everyone had an opinion from the very beginning. Personally, after three episodes, I would put it at the bottom of the Netflix Marvel output, but it's not bad. It's just kind of mediocre comparatively. I think it's a shame that the show was torpedoed by people who should know better long before it was released. Pete, your thoughts on Bruce's words. Really good email. Um, the the interesting thing about the comments with uh, Asians, um, you know, let's let's get those other characters. I maintain that this is the final Defender series because it's essentially the the weakest character and and maybe toughest to to get across. So, uh, so Pete, just so I'm clear, even prior to adaptation, you're saying it's the weakest character. I think so. I I really think so. Um, you did the the the. The, the white lawyer first we're bookending it with the white uh, son of businessman who's learned Kung Fu come back um, and some diversity in between. Could they have gone Asian? I maintain again, they could have, they chose not to. That is what it is. You can't unscramble an egg. Um, and I think the jury has to remain out until we see what a lot of people, myself included, are excited about, about the Defenders, which is Luke Cage and Iron Fist together. Um, you know, the 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 big guy, little buddy type of thing. And, you know, being able to see the four of them kick some butt and interact as their characters, as their alter egos, is going to be super excited whenever we finally get that date. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really interesting point to ponder. There There is that reverse reaction now that has developed to all the criticism that they whitewashed the character. You've got the original character, or the original character, the creator of the original character in the comics, putting his foot in the mouth on uh, social media. And that would, we're not even going to, we're not going to discuss his comments, not because we don't want to discuss things. Yeah. It was so, it was offensive, offensively it ignorant. Was, it was that, offensive. That it's not, and yeah. Yeah, you're old, but that still doesn't make racism tolerable at any age. Um, so that is out there as well. Um, but we have to, as uh, podcasters, uh, watch. And I have to say that that um, Finn Jones has been serviceable as Danny Rand. Finn Jones is 
sense of charisma, I think, has increased. Well, now that the character is no longer on drugs and no longer on uh, uh, trap, that sort of thing, uh, there, there's a new cool to this character. Um, I do have to say, Pete, Bruce has given me something to consider, which is not just even the backlash, just how would I feel if I was told, good news, to be more diverse, you know, the karate superhero, they're going to make him Asian. Like, and I understand it's not karate, it's kung fu, but, you know, my point being, like, if that was the read a year out, I don't, you know, like, hey, this one must be the most Asian because he does, he does karate chops and stuff. Like, Bruce has a great point there that, that to automatically make him the Asian one, I think I would have been happiest with diversity and dealt with the fact that he's now the Asian character who does kung fu. But that's a fair point, too. That's something that must have come up in the early planning uh, planning stages. And um, I think, too, there's a little... I think with Daredevil, there's a little bit of retconning that has gone on if you, if you want to be talking about the diversity of the other three. Um, obviously... Luke Cage, uh, African-American, obviously Jessica Jones being portrayed and showrun and in many episodes directed, many episodes written from a female point of view. Um, and, Even and bring... Jerry Hogarth, that, that we took a, a comic character who is male and, um, you know, have this great female, female portrayal uh, courtesy Carrie Ann Moss. Um, so they have done it. They chose not to do it here. Only those people who made that decision know why. I know there's there's been supposition that one of the actors who shows up later in this series may have uh, auditioned for Iron Fist. It's it's discussion at this point, but what are we gonna do? We're gonna we're gonna you know blot out the the show and and redo it. Finn Jones is the character. Yeah, and just to finish the the Daredevil thought, I mean, there's no question that he is. There's no question he is blind, and therefore it, it is in many ways representative of and and the source of aspiration for those with handicaps. We've heard we we had a blind man write into the show, um, you know, with a with an audio message that was just so impactful for me of of what that means. Um, I was watching a Facebook video this morning about uh, America, the the Hispanic gay uh, Marvel hero that is out there now and, and the woman who creates it and, and you know, the, the reception and everything she's dealt with. You know, it's, it's not as if there haven't been, um, you know, scores for diversity. Every casting doesn't need to be diverse at the at the same time, too. Um, and I, I say this as a, a white male of 41 that, you know, for many, many, many years, all, all the heroes were were like me. So I've never really had to feel that. And uh, Matt likely in a in a similar position. Um, but Danny Rand is Caucasian on this show and really. I'm not sure what more we can do about it to change it. Pete, 41. I've seen pictures <laughs> pictures of you from 15 years ago. Pete, I don't think that you've aged a day. <laughs> don't give me cancer now. <laughs> I'm not back from the dead. <laughs> well, Pete, before we start to wrap things up, I want to give a big thanks, as always, to our patrons on patreon.com slash fantastic geek. We are chugging out 
you know, 100 megabytes every two or three days uh, in this stretch here. And uh, that, that storage, that bandwidth is absolutely made possible by the help of those patrons. I mean, my goodness, uh, every time we go to record, which seems like a lot, um, that Patreon contribution comes in really big and maintaining the massive backlog of podcasts we have for all of these Marvel Cinematic shows, uh, every single one, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Carter, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, The Inhumans now, and uh, Punisher and Defenders coming. So, uh, patrons, you are a huge part of that. Uh, you get yourself a uh, – you, you choose the reward or you choose none at all. Even if you choose none at all, you still get access to exclusive podcast uh, content by donating. So thanks again. And as always, the best, Pete, that's, that's what I hear from our listeners, the best <laughs> thing that continues to come free, and that's talking to you on Twitter. How can people do so? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E -E 9,116 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast 24-7, 365, just like Bruce did, just like Anonymous Passport Commenter did. <laughs> we are Fantastic Geek. Just like we are Rand. We are Fantastic Geek. That's fantastic with a PH. You can get in touch at fantasticgeek at gmail.com, like Bruce, fantasticgeek.com, like Anonymous Commenter. You can also tweet us at Fantastic Geek or even check us out on Instagram. That's Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com forward slash Fantastic Geek, all one word, with the PH. Uh, more and more people like it every day. You're going to want to be part of it. Well, with that, Pete, we are going to reload. We'll be back on Monday with brand new episodes as we continue to watch and analyze Iron Fist. So I will say goodbye to all our listeners and give you the final word. I'm ready to go home now.